Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The cycling chef Alan Murchison has some encouraging news for cyclists who've been overindulging and underexerting during lockdown. There's a place in your diet for burgers and pizzas. Less encouraging for some of us, you need to match your intake with your load. And we're looking back at the women's stage race in the 80s that was so tough, the UCI said no. This is Ruler Conversations, brought to you by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. A women's Tour de France run at the same time as the men's, with female riders sharing the podium. A season packed with quality races fought over by well-funded professional women's teams. Not a dream for the future, but reality for many from the mid-80s through to the 90s. A much-missed golden age for women's racing. Remembered by Isabel Best in the latest Rouleur issue 102. In particular, she focuses on the largely forgotten Oreida, a 17-day stage race in the States, which was regarded as so tough that the UCI refused to approve it. There was this amazing thing that happened in women's racing in 1984, where you had the first women's Olympic road race and uh, the first women's Tour de France. That just triggered an explosion in amazing races being put on for women. So suddenly all these great stage races, you know, a lot in America and a lot in Europe. It was just this really exciting moment. A lot of the energy came from America. The first really serious women's stage race was an American race. It was the Coors Classic, which started, I think, in 1975. And what was really great about that was that it was a men's race, but there was also a women's race. It was just quite normal in America that all the big races had a men's version and a women's version. And that was just not the case in Europe at all. So America was very exciting for women's racing from the mid 80s onwards. And the prize money was not the same as the men's, but it did, you know, there was prize money, whereas in Europe it used to be sort of like irons and things that women would get, or, you know, cleaning products. Ingrid Thompson talks about being given a pepper grinder once. But, um, and also it just it was becoming women's cycling was becoming professional in America first as well. That was sort of really, you know, Connie Carpenter Finney was able to live as a cyclist. People forget that uh, women's the professionalization of women's cycling is really, really recent. I mean, it's, you know, it's still really not professional now in many respects. If you're talking about the money, you know, there's so many women who have to do other jobs who are professional cyclists. Um, 
America was this sort of land of opportunity in the 80s and, and 90s for, for women's racing. It's always sort of struck me that uh, American cycling, both men's and women's, has always been uh, slightly more sort of college-based and middle-class than it has been in, in the UK and Europe. And that definitely applied to women as well, didn't it? And, you know, it's funny because um, the, the, the American women cyclists are often incredibly articulate, like really impressive, you know, like the doctors on the side or, you know, they're like... And I definitely think a lot of women have come and still come through into racing, discover racing through college racing programs. And the really important thing to remember also in America was Title IX, which came through in 1972, which basically meant that all um, higher education institutions had to, there had to be equality in sports. And since sport is really important for American universities, that meant they had to have women's teams and men's, as well as men's teams. And so a lot of women came into cycling quite late, you know, in their late teens, early 20s from uh, through university. I think the same counts for men. And there's, you know, there's a whole racing structure, collegiate racing structure in America. So it's a great sort of filter system. You know, it's funny, actually, when you interview these retired female racers, they're all like so great to interview because they're just highly articulate and, you know, really intelligent and smart. And the British rider, Lisa Brambani, um, she uh, went out there, it was kind of almost on a whim, didn't she? she she, she kind of transferred to American racing. She says she met someone. She tells this funny story about being at a world championships road race and someone and me chatting to an American at the start. And they're saying she fancy racing for an American team. And she went out there and she worked, raced for uh, Weight Watchers, which was actually owned by the same company that created the Orida race craft um which i always think is funny because all rider is a brand of potato snacks you have the potato snacks and then you have weight watchers you know you have the... <laughs> but uh yeah she went out there for a few years and uh, she won the race in 1989 and she she was this great rider who was she's very small and really good going up mountains i think she won the 1989 edition by going on this like crazy long break in the mountains but uh she was a good all-rounder you know coming from yorkshire there's a bit of a time trial tradition there as well but, uh, she came out with this great line comparing the or ida race and basically american racing in general to british racing as as disneyland to butlins <laughs> um, it was really interesting talking to her about her experience of being in america at the time um and how there are these, these races everywhere, you know, every weekend, you know, you'd fly across America, you know, there's a lot of flying that went on, but, you know, the, and the prize money was quite good, you know, you could live off it. Talking about the Ori Ida in particular, we kind of have to talk about the, the man who came up with it, Jim Rabdahl, um, uh, who was completely unconnected with cycling, really, wasn't it? He'd been a Green Beret, but he'd served in Vietnam. He'd be, you know, he'd like, was really kind of like, he's like the most unlikely hero. He came from Idaho, which is a very sort of like white Republican, quite conservative state. And, uh, you know, he'd done this like the sort of most kind of like macho of jobs and then he goes to have a women's bike race um and I think what happened is that he'd been in Italy he'd been posted in Italy at one point and he, he fell in love with cycling he his his patrol was held up at a crossroads as, as the bike race was going past and he just thought this is just what a fantastic looking sport this is and and then when he retired he um started working at Orida and he was um they were like trying to think of ways to promote their potato snacks to women and um, and he came up with the idea of doing this bike race and doing it as a stage race and and what's so fantastic about him is that he was just passionate about racing and I think he obviously learned a lot of stuff quickly and I think he became friends with Michael Eisner who who organized the cause classic and you know he 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 brought a lot of good people on board to help him he was just a real believer in 
you know, he just, he wasn't interested in molly coddling the women. He really wanted to give them a really good race, you know, in which they could really show what they could do. And when the 1990 race was announced, the route of Ori Ida, um, it was uh, supposed to be so hard, or it was deemed too hard for women to ride, and the UCI refused to sanction it. Yeah, and, and also, you know, not only that, but he was hoping to get international status so he could invite all these international teams, because I think... You couldn't officially invite teams unless you had international status. So, you know, he'd been running for quite a while and it, it had, every year it had been growing and he wanted to do it. And it was, a, it was, a, it was they were celebrating the centenary of um, Idaho. So it was, he wanted to make it a big, big race to remember. And yeah, and the UCI were like, no, you, you've got the stage, it's far too long. Um, and, the sta- <laughs> and you've got stages that are too long and, and it's, you know, it's too, too hard for the women. You can't do that. And, and he, he just, thought well sod that we're going to do it anyway because he was outside the whole system anyway really wasn't he I mean I think that was one of the great things about American cycling at the time was that I get the feeling there was a fumbling their way forwards in in many ways they weren't kind of caught up in this kind of European snobbery of like how things are done you know they were just inventing things a bit and, and doing things their own way and all the elite women riders all the top women riders used to race with men you know they take part in men's amateur races you know, there was less rules in America, so you could do that. And I think that was also one of the great things about that kind of racing culture that I think there was really, it wasn't like two separate worlds, which I feel like you have now. It just seemed like the men and women were just friends and they trained together and sometimes they raced together. What we love about America really, isn't it? It's part of this sort of mythology of America of reinventing things. And 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 I think uh, I think Jim Rabdo was like, you know, well, who are these guys? You know, <laughs> who are these UCI people telling us how to, you know, telling us women can't race 80 miles? What's you know, why can't they do that? Of course they can. You deal with the 1990 race in in detail in in the uh, feature in Rouleur, but um, the race went on for a few years after that, didn't it? But um, uh, what happened to it? I think the previous race had been 10 stages the year before. And um, and so 1990, it went up to 17. And then the following year, it went back to 10. But um, the mileage was almost the same. It was not that much smaller. And then Eventually, he got UCI, you know, the UCI sort of gradually sort of woke up a bit <laughs> and started getting a bit more sort of um, uh, accepting that women could do longer distances. And that became the sort of trend in women's racing anyway. And the 90s was a really great period in women's racing. There were all these fantastic stage races and great riders were emerging. And, you know, then he had all the Soviet bloc riders like the Lithuanians coming and, and upping the ante. And it was just this great moment. And the Orida just got bigger. I think the sponsors changed. And the last sponsor was Hewlett Packard. And at that point, it had the biggest prize fund of any any race, male or female, in America. And then I think they had a sponsor lined up for the 2003 edition. And uh, they pulled out at the last minute or, or it fell through. And I think Jim Rabdo was quite old by that point. I think he was in his early 70s um, and he was already suffering. You know, he had health problems. And um, so he decided to call it a day and, um, and no one really took over. So that was that was the end of that, really. And, and why do you think uh, women's racing didn't sort of develop on, continue to develop on a sort of upward path from that point? Because... Uh, looking back at the number of races um, and the scale of them, we've we've barely sort of reached that point again now, have we? I think there was this sort of catastrophic moment in the early 2000s where just 
so many races disappeared and it was just this sort of like mass extinction of, of women's stage races and sponsors walking away. I mean, Nicole Cook, in her, her amazing retirement speech, she talks about that a lot. And she lays the blame on the, on the, all the doping scandals, you know, in men's, all the, you know, it's like the high point of the EPO scandal era, wasn't it? The thing is also, I think women's racing is often, the sponsors of women's racing are often sort of health products or, you know, it's like Weight Watchers or it's, you know, it's like, it's, it's you know, it's all about sort of healthy living and all that kind of thing. And, and I think that was just obviously disastrous for uh, the sponsors of women's racing, even if arguably, I can't believe that there was the same level of doping going on in the women's peloton. But anyway, they definitely suffered as a result of that, all those doping scandals. And I think, and then the UCI, they just like started like imposing these like crazy things of like limiting women's stage races again. I mean, I don't know when exactly it happened, but it was definitely in the early 2000s that they suddenly limited um, women's stage races to six stages, you know. And I, I think the issue now is not so much the UCI putting the brakes on things, but I think it's just finance now. You know, I, I just, you know, the teams are not big enough. I mean, there's, there's so much campaigning for a women's Tour de France and it would be fantastic to see a women's three-week stage race but when you talk to the riders they they will all say that they're just you know to have a three-week stage race there's all the stuff that goes with that you need to have a big team all the backup with the soigneurs and 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 most teams are just not big enough for that so I, I feel very positive about it or well, I think it's definitely definitely seems like we're sort of at a sort of watershed moment especially the ruler women's issue <laughs> I think is a real indication of that and do you think there are any lessons to be learned from what happened with Oreida and 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 that explosion of women's racing back then I think if you put on a good race that it doesn't matter if it's men or women riding it you know it's going to be good if you have like spectacular terrain I mean the Oreida one, one of the great things about that race is that this the landscape is just absolutely stunning you know you've got the Rocky Mountains you've got You've got desert plains, you've got like wilderness, you've got these river valleys, you know, and, they, and that race had a bit of everything, you know, it had, you, you had time trials, they, they, the Americans were really into criterion racing, so there are quite a few of those, you know, there's road races, sprinter stages, you know, everything, everything you wanted, team time trials. And I think if you if you provide a stage, the riders will step up and they will put on a great performance and there'll be an audience for it as well. And I... I you know, I, I, I just get the feeling when I read about the American racing scene in the 80s, I, I just feel like it just sounds like it was just great. It just sounds like there was a real optimism and excitement and it was just a brave new world. And that thing of tribalism, of creating different worlds, you know, like you've got the men's world and the women's world. And, and of course, you know, you can't have a race with the elite men and women in the same race. It's, you know, it just doesn't, isn't, it's not really going to work. But just that thing of moving those two worlds closer together, I think is a, is a really great thing to do. Um, although, of course, the, one of the things that was really interesting about the All Rider is that it was a women's only race, you know, that you'd had this whole tradition in America of all the big races having a men's and a women's edition. And, and that was one of the things that everyone loved about the idea was that it was a women's, it was just, there was no men's race. It was just for the women. I, I always feel with this stuff, you have these concrete things, like you have a race and you have, you know, you have these things that are in the diary. But I think so much of what makes a scene is that is the sort of atmosphere around it. Is this sort of, it's how people are interacting with each other. It's the, it's the, 
it's the roadside audience in races, isn't it? It's, it's not just the race itself. It's all the stuff that goes around it. Isabel Best, thank you for joining us on Ruler Conversations. You can read Isabel's feature, True Grit, or Ida, in issue 102 of Ruler. So my name is Oren Peleg, and I'm an investor in LACA. Three things that really caught my eye. The first one is, is they're looking to change the insurance industry, which is a very large industry and I think needs change. The second thing is, is I'm deeply passionate about getting people onto wheel. We need to address our congestion and pollution crisis and I believe that two wheels have a massive role to play in that. And the third thing is, I can see a growing trend around companies building on the strong communities that they have. And I think Lacquer's business model in the way they tap into the community of cyclists is something that's very much on trend at the moment. Rouleur issue 102 is available now, the True Grit edition, featuring Lotto Sedal, Lachlan Morton, Svein Tuft and Isla Short, and a feature in which a top chef cooks a meal for Bradley Wiggins and Sean Yates, inspired by the exploits of Eddie Merckx. You really need to read it yourselves. Now then, here's an infomercial message for the discerning folk of Rouleurland. For the finest long-form cycling journalism and exquisite photography and design, why don't you simply subscribe to Rouleur magazine? It costs as little as £7 per month. Regular columnists include Orla Shenwi, Roman Bardet and me, Ned Bolting, accompanied by features from the best writers and photographers in the business. Simply go to rouleur.cc. You know it makes sense. So cyclists may disagree about a lot of things, but there's one subject they'll all agree on, and that's the importance of food. Rides are built around cafe stops and endless debates about what to eat and when. And among the growing number of cycling chefs fighting for your attention, one of the best known is Alan Murchison, a Michelin-starred chef, master's cyclist and runner. Alan advises a range of athletes on their diets as well. Uh, his new book, The Cycling Chef, Recipes for Getting Lean and fueling the machine is already a favourite in our house. Alan, uh, welcome to the podcast. Um, getting lean, probably more important than ever after the uh, year that we've had. Most of us have been in lockdown. Absolutely. I think we've uh, we've got two very distinct groups of cyclists. We've got those that have been training 25 hours a week and those that have been sitting on the sofa bulking. And uh, so it's uh, it's important to have a balance, I think. But the, the first book, um, Recipes for Performance and Pleasure, was a big success. What's, what's different with your new one? A bit of feedback, really, from the people that used the first book. We've basically divided the recipes into quite distinct groups of you know, food for easier days, medium days and harder days. And I think the one sort of thing that most cyclists challenge with is how much should I eat and, you know, how should I ultimately fuel the ride? And it's such a personal thing, really. So we've, we try to just put them into sectors just to take away the guesswork. The recipes in the book and the sort of thinking behind that, um, are they just for serious athletes or should anyone be using them and, and the principles behind them? I think the principles apply to everything. I so say I'm reasonably fortunate that I work with athletes of all of all abilities from beginners right the way up to Olympic champions. And the one thing that kind of joins everybody is that they, their training load and their food load are kind of aligned. And I think that's something that's really important. I get as much satisfaction out of getting, you know, low-lying fruit, as I would call it, you know, beginners and, and get them to understand having carbs on the bike, you know, having more protein on rest and recovery days. 
and that the same principles apply right the way up so what, what i'm not is elitist in any way and i try to practice where possible diets that are inclusive not exclusive so everything has its place you know whether that's a burger a slab of chocolate you know whatever it is it has its place in a healthy and balanced diet and i can testify to the fact that um, the recipes in the books are not particularly difficult are they even for the sort of uh, most amateur of home chefs uh, absolutely not like when we're going through the recipe development process what i tend to do is I'll, I'll buy everything from a local supermarket and I try where possible to do everything in under 30 minutes. So I'll do it and then get my partner to do it. And then we send recipe packs out to athletes that we work with and say, tell me how this works for you. Is it, is it real? Is it achievable? And that's, that was the big difference coming from, say, a Michelin star kitchen, whereas I used to have 10 to 12 chefs in every kitchen and everything was hugely laborious. Whereas sometimes the simplest of meals can be, you know, sometimes the easiest things. And probably one of the favorite dishes that we have in the book is like a sort of carrot and peanut slaw. And you get a load of carrots, grate them up, and then you make a dressing with peanut butter, sweet chili sauce, a touch of soya sauce, and a bit of white wine vinegar, edamame beans and boiled rice. You've got grated raw carrot and it's, it's stunning, it's sweet, it's salty, it's crunchy, can be prepared in advance. It's vegan, you know, for our vegan friends. So it's got everything. So it doesn't need to be overly complicated. So uh, getting lean and fueling the machine, there is a debate, isn't there, um, around uh, the whole sort of obsession with weight and eating disorders in sports. And, and thinner doesn't always mean fitter, does it? Uh, absolutely not. And I think the main thing is you've got to, you've got, absolutely got to pick your battles. And if you look at your physiology, work with what you've got. And, you know, we, we're just coming up to the classic season, you know, which is, always the curtain opener of the season and it's fascinating when you see that the the physical stature of a lot of the riders that do well they tend to be bigger stronger athletes you know you're never going to get with all due respect a 50 kilo south american climber is never going to win paris roubaix or flanders let's be brutally honest Um, then again if you go to these alpine climbs that are 20k long that's not the domain of an 85 kilo roller you know so it's it's really important that you understand what you've got and play to your strengths and that's what we've again tried to get across with the book is that we, we put a power to weight chart in there it's quite an interesting thing and i did a, a bit of a breakdown myself you know off season weight 80 odd kilos get down to race season weight and i improved from being average to slightly better than average um but it's really important that you understand there's a huge difference between being healthy and being fit so you could be fit and really really unhealthy and it's all about getting, again, that balance. That's why we try to make sure that every every meal plan or most of the recipes have got good fats, they've got carbs, they've got protein, they've got fibre. All of these things form a balanced diet. Yeah, because we all think, don't we, that you know we've been out for 50k on a Sunday morning. We can then just eat what we like for the rest of the day. Uh, well, you know, exaggerating for effect. Theoretically, you could eat salad and cucumber and have a really unhealthy diet. And then again, you could be lean and eat nothing but, you know, chocolate bars it's it's just a matter of getting that balance right and you know I'm a, I'm a great believer in having a day off a week just eat what you want you know the, the burger that you have on a Sunday Saturday evening isn't going to affect your key event in six months time but psychologically it's a good thing to have and again I, I, I've got a couple of theories that you know all training rights should have a purpose you know so if you look at a training plan of which there's many great things online many great books written about it you know, training is actually fairly easy. You know, you do a couple of rides a week below your projected race pace, a couple of rides a week 
at your projected pace and a couple of rides maybe above you know that's kind of what training is you know below during and after and if you have the same kind of philosophy of food with everything you do has a purpose you know so whether that's to help you repair recover but you know what there's nothing wrong with like going out and just riding your bike and taking a picture of it against the fence post that's the way i feel about food going out and having a takeaway or a curry or a beer with a pizza or a dirty burger that's got its place and, and every time i have a race and i do well or i do badly i always go out and have a pizza after it doesn't matter you know i i, I celebrate success but i also celebrate the fact you know i had a shit day to day on the bike but you know what it's one of those things get over yourself i think sometimes what do you think the biggest change has been in sports diets in athletes diets over the over the past few years well i think if you go back back in the day you know people were often you know eating is cheating was kind of a mantra that was used you know you go back 20 odd years ago and people would go out and do four or five hours with a bottle of water and and that sort of thing is i think kind of very much stuck in the past you've got to really look after yourself and if you look at say the top 100 books in amazon any time of the year you like a lot of the books around health fitness and well-being and there's a lot of education out there but i think what you've got to concentrate on as a cyclist is it's really important that you eat you know so if you look at a lot of these healthy diets quite often they're taking out carbs in particular and carbs are king when it comes to fueling bike rides there's a lot more education out there, but with that, there's quite a bit of misinformation. And what I find, again, working with athletes of all sorts of abilities is everybody eats everything. You know, that's the thing. So whether you're wanting to win the Olympics or you just want to get around two hours on a Sunday with your mates, it's really important that you have that balance in a diet. So, and also I think the other thing, eating for performance is not a bad thing. You know, all athletes uh, have to eat a balanced meal and, you know, Eat, eat for performance, I think, is probably the main thing. However you determine that. You're still involved in, in you know, working with cycling teams, working with, uh, working with riders. Um, across the season, how does the sort of food that you prepare and the sort of things that you're doing, how does it change? Um, it's affected greatly by the event. Uh, if we look at the, the Canyon Shram World Tour team and working with at the moment, you know, these riders, have, you know, they've got these big one-day events and, and that's a very different sort of feeding strategy as we do for a three-day race like the Healthy Aging Tour or sort of a grand tour like the Giro. What we tend to do with, with single day races is, you know, we'll reduce fiber for a couple of days before and, and we'll, we'll simplify the food. Um, you're going for three days. If you've got, we've got a mixture of low fiber meals and then higher carb, higher, higher carb meals. So again, you look at the healthy aging tour, they've got a long stage, they've got a 13K time trial, then another hilly stage. That's a very different fueling strategy. And then if you look at say 10 to 12 days, which is probably, relevant to what your average domestic uh, amateur rider would use for a training camp. Female athletes, world-class athletes are looking at taking eight to 10 grams of carbohydrate per kilo of body weight per day over a stage race, which is a huge amount. And male world tour riders could be taking 10 to 12 grams of carbs per day. So quite often it's a matter of getting enough volume into the diet and also enough calories. So it's also important, again, for your listeners to think about if they're doing a one-off, say 100 miler, that sportif, that big one-day event, or they're going on a training camp, really important that they match the load with their event. Okay, Alan Murchison, thanks for joining us. The Cycling Chef, Recipes for Getting Lean and Fueling the Machine is out now and it's published by Bloomsbury.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 